Doug, what's up, buddy? Hey, brother. Sorry I'm running a few minutes late. Oh, no, you're good, man. How you doing? Always together, you know, to look presentable for the camera. I was about to say, you got all logoed out, man. And the mug and everything. <laughs> uh, for the course. But I added extra for you. I did bring the mug. And I did put the hat on. I don't nice. usually wear the hat on, on podcasts. Hey, I like the uh, I like the camo. That's nice. Yeah, that's new. Uh, we we just put this out. Matter of fact, very few people have it yet. Although they'll have an opportunity at Win the Storm to pick up some new APA swag. Nice. So you're gonna put them on uh, the website to buy? That's above my pay grade. Uh, I know they sometimes they'll have the online store uh, running. Sometimes they don't have it running, and the only place to get it is at a conference with us or by joining. Um, as much as it drives me insane, there are people who join just to rock the gear. Yeah. But, you know, whatever brings people in to support the mission is fine. Hey, man, I like that white camo, though. That's pretty sharp. Well, we will have to arrange to get one to you. I might have to. Uh, I got a little bit of camo on mine. I might have to change up the design a little bit and steal, steal that white camo look. That's pretty sharp. You know, I offered to give you a hat, and now you want to, like, cop our swag. <laughs> I will be more than grateful if you send me a hat. That'd be awesome. I'll definitely rock it. You are an APA member in good standing, so we can certainly send you a hat. <laughs> Sounds good, man. Well, hey, brother. Uh, look, I, I really appreciate you coming on, and I'm I'm really excited to kind of dig into stuff with you. And uh, appreciate you taking the time. I know you're out there in Florida still kind of boost the ground are you still out in florida right now i'm in jersey but we are back and forth in florida and uh i will actually be in miami at the natural disaster expo in uh the week after next march 1st i believe it is uh and then we'll try to get a little dip over to the hurricane ian zone and check in there but we're in touch with uh our members and our board advisors who are on the ground in florida every day nice Good deal, man. Well, I mean, just for the people out there, man, why don't you tell us a little bit about who you are, what the APA is, and that kind of stuff. Yeah, I am uh, Doug Quinn. I'm the executive director of the American Policyholder Association. We are a nonprofit and the only organization in the country with the mission of going after criminal fraud perpetrated by the insurance carrier side. Insurance carriers themselves or the vendors they hire, such as third-party administrators, uh, IAs, and engineering firms. And also we go after license violations, such as engineers and adjusters who violate the ethics code of their license to maybe give the insurance company a little bit of an edge. Nice. If you do that, then you are putting your license on the line. Gotcha. I know you and I have talked numerous times, but I know you've got a real personal connection to this and what kind of led up to you creating the APA and all that stuff. Can you give us a little insight on kind of your personal history that led to everything? Sure. I was uh, fat, dumb, and happy, a financial advisor uh, living on the, on the Jersey shore. And uh, I had worked for my firm was owned by one of the largest insurance companies in the country. I believed heavily in insurance. I still do believe heavily in insurance. I recommended millions, if not tens of millions of insurance uh, for my, my clients over the years uh, and absolutely believe it is a very important financial planning tool. It is a risk management tool 
that allows the average individual to handle a loss that would otherwise be catastrophic and set their family back generations. Um, now, all fine and good until uh, I had to put a claim in. I got wiped out in Superstorm Sandy. As a matter of fact, I will show you that lovely body of water out the window. I don't know if you can see that or not. Oh, yeah. Decided not to stay where it is and come into my living room instead. Uh, my room was flooded by three, four feet of water. No big deal. I had bought the maximum legal amount of flood insurance I could buy. Uh, I only needed to buy enough to cover my mortgage, but I bought the maximum legal amount uh, because, again, I'm a financial advisor. I believe heavily in insurance, uh, and it was all great until I put a claim in and my insurance company decided they were going to pay me 37 cents on the dollar. Uh, and, you know, just kind of thinking, hey, it's a mistake. I, I, you know, it happens. I just have to show them the right pictures. I just have to explain it to them the right way. They'll get it because I just was stuck from being on the other side, selling insurance and recommending insurance. You know, they're always going to come through. And I just, it's just a mistake. I just got to explain. I just got to show the pictures. I just got to send in the right forms. And then we turned out, uh, no, it was not a mistake. Uh, and they actually sent out an engineer from a company called U.S. Forensics out of Metairie, Louisiana, who basically uh, either he himself or somebody at his firm or at the insurance company created a fraudulent report to say that that damage was already there. The giant cracks in my foundation, the big hole where the water had rushed in and undermined my foundation and flooded my crawl space came up into my house. That was already there, uh, which is fine, except I had just bought my house. I had pictures. I had inspection reports. I had before pictures showing none of that damage was there. Obviously, my mortgage company inspected. They were not going to allow me to buy a house with, you know, a, a compromised foundation. Um, and, you know, it was as simple as I just got to show them this and they're going to be like, oops, yeah, we made a mistake. And they came back with, nope, that's the story. It was there. They dug their heels in. Uh, I was forced to file suit. And you know, look, you know, Marcus, I'm sure you and I are alike in many ways. I am old school. I was raised by old school depression era parents who said, you know, you don't sue for your money because the coffee's too hot. You know, you work for your for a living. So I was actually ashamed to have to file a suit. But yeah. uh, they backed me into a corner and they laughed at the lawsuits too. It was about 2,000 of us litigated uh, and they know the math. About 2% of people sue, 98% of people take what they're offered and walk away and lick their wounds. You know, they, they're forced to spend their kids' college savings. They're forced to, forced to spend their retirement money, their own personal savings. They're forced to take on debt to make up the difference to rebuild their home and their lives. Uh, so they just fought us tooth and nail. And what we did differently in Sandy, and this was a whole group of us, plaintiffs, attorneys, public adjusters, People from our senator's office have worked very close with our senators and our congressmen up here, um, consumer advocates, grassroots community organizers, people like me from the victim space. We all just you know, knew something was wrong here. We we're watching. You know, this didn't just happen to me. This has happened to my neighbor. This happened to my cousin. This happened to people we bumped into at meetings. It was a, a regular thing. And what we did differently in Sandy is we got the New York Attorney General to raid an engineering firm on Long Island, seize their files, and go back two weeks later and walk out one of their managers in handcuffs. Uh, and what we were caught them doing is 
in the instances where the engineer on the ground got it right and said, yes, this is storm damage. This process would go into something called peer review, which is a legitimate process. You know, other engineers would sit around and review the pictures and, you know, the dynamics. And they may make changes to the report, um, but the original engineer has to sign off on it and apply a seal. Engineer seals are very serious. Um, so they were creating fraudulent reports. Basically what they were doing is, you know, we have one famous example. It's a side-by-side -side of the, the pre-report that said the original engineer said house was damaged by storm forces. And when, when the homeowners got it from the insurance company, they just inserted the word not. House was not damaged by storm forces. Um, now, 2,000 of us sued in civil court did absolutely nothing. They fought us all the way. But this one criminal arrest changed everything. It was on the front pages of all the papers up here. Uh, FEMA, the judge, uh, interesting enough, one of these cases was in litigation and the defense had suppressed the original report. And the judge, Judge Brown, Third District Court of Appeals in New York, I believe it was, immediately ordered that I want to see every single original report pre-peer inspection that's in my, that's a case in my courthouse. I want to see it immediately. And believe it or not, Craig Fugate, the head of FEMA, called the judge and tried to get him to rescind that order. The head of a federal agency that is supposed to be looking out for U.S. citizens called a sitting judge and tried to get him to rescind an order to turn over proof that massive fraud was being committed against storm victims. Um, it was insane. Wow. Yep. And again, what happened in that one, and, and that was a big thing because that had been the, the defense firm that was involved in that for the insurance company defense firm was, and the, the insurance company itself were both fined a million dollars. The firm was removed from like 2,200 cases. Uh, uh, Nielsen and Treese, dirtbags, sat on the floor of the U.S. Congress, U.S. Senate, and said this, uh, and it's in the permanent congressional record, called out both U.S. forensics and them, uh, and, and that's on the record. And it was probably one of the more satisfying parts of my APA career is to sit and have a couple of senators jump on boards like, oh, yeah. These guys are what Kennedy from Louisiana. I, I love Louisiana politicians. Actually, said they're they're figuratively raping policyholders. Yeah, uh, these thieves, these law firms and engineering firms. Why does FEMA keep hiring them? Um, it was very, and of course, our Senator Menendez, who has been a staunch supporter and helping in the fight against these uh, this carrier nonsense. So listen, this one arrest turned everything around. Uh, we were able to get 144,000 claims reopened, something like $350 million were paid out to people who had been cheated. FEMA created a whole new process to, of appeals that people can bring in their appeals and reopen their cases and look at it again. And uh, sadly, though, you know, it's not like the movies where, you know, it's in the paper, and the politicians jump in and they do something and everybody goes on to a happy life we still see a lot of the same nonsense all over yeah. the country and i'm sure you see it too we have and and not just engineering firms but tpa firms and ia firms you know who are lapdogs to the insurance industry because 
it's big money for them. And they have check writer bias and they want to tell the boss what they want to hear. So they get that next contract because again, you're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars that are involved here. So it's, yeah. you know, that's how I got involved. And a couple of years later, you know, okay, yay, we won. And then a couple of years later, we get it. Of course, this is still going on. So a group of us got together uh, in New Orleans and said, you know what, we're going to start an organization that focuses just on this. Nobody is looking at carrier side fraud. Almost 100% of insurance fraud prosecution in America is done to defend insurance companies, not against them. So we are the only organization we formed the first ever SIU. If people don't know what an SIU, it's a special investigation unit. Every insurance company has one. They have access, confidential access to claims. They see something that looks fraudulent because people do commit fraud against insurance companies all the time. It is absolutely wrong. It is an absolute crime. You absolutely should have consequences for that. Um, but our position is it happens on all sides. Um, so we've created the first ever SIU. It's called the APA Consumer Protection Unit, the CPU. Uh, it's run by one of the top insurance fraud investigator prosecutors in the country. He's got a team of 20, 30 year former insurance fraud investigators, cops, people that work for the insurance department, for the, for the California Highway Patrol, for the DA's office. They've got something like 150 years experience just in this one unit that the APA has. And our members can turn over cases to us where they see criminal fraud and we'll evaluate it. And if it turns out we do see fraud and there is enough evidence to support, sometimes that's the catch. Uh, there is enough evidence to support a criminal referral. We will refer to prosecutors on that. Who's the who's the leader of that of that group that that you mentioned that y'all have? A man named Dominic Dugo, who is a, I always get this wrong the order of it. He is a uh, chief deputy district attorney, retired. Uh, he ran a fraud unit in San Diego County, California, one county in one state had a $13 million a year budget to go after insurance fraud. And he was one of the, the top in the country. Uh, as a matter of fact, he's actually a former co-chair of the Coalition Against Insurance Fraud. He's very well known. He's very well respected. Um, he's, he's a, he is the real deal. Uh, we were very, I saw a notice that he was retiring. I had one of our board advisors from uh, up in Los, Los Angeles, fly down to San Diego like that day and meet with him and sort of vet him out. We courted him for nine months and we finally got him to agree to come work for us. And uh, he's a game changer and, and his staff are phenomenal. Well, what was it like when y'all first kind of organized this thing? And then how has it kind of transitioned now? Was I mean, how, how many people did you kind of have to organize in the beginning how has that grown since then? Like what, what kind of changes have been made? Well, I'll give you a couple levels. In the beginning, we first started, it was like a very simple, somebody did a power, because, you know, we, it happened in Sandy. It was kind of simple. So, you know, yeah. somebody met with the attorney general in New York and said, hey, you know, this is going on. Here's the proof. And uh, he loaded up a whole bunch of, of uh, press and he showed up and raided this firm and it was all over the news. And, you know, he's an elected <laughs> official. It's good for him. Uh, and then we're like, well, we're just going to do that. And it was a simple model. We're going to meet with the attorney general of every state because the attorney general is a top law enforcement official in every state. Yeah. District attorneys and state's attorneys, you know, they're, they, they, they have a lot 
You know what I mean? If it comes to, hey, I'm going to take this white collar crime on, or here's somebody who got murdered or raped, you know, they're, they're in a tough situation. So obviously, you know, they're going to go for the bloody crimes that really put the citizenry uh, at risk for their health and well-being. But district attorneys, in some cases, U.S. attorneys and some state's attorneys have the ability to take on more complex white collar crime. And this is white collar crime. These are not thugs throwing yeah. bricks through jewelry store windows. These are smart people doing devious things and they know how to cover their tracks. So, you know, it's a very complicated expense. So we thought it's going to be, hey, we're going to meet with this attorney and say, hey, if we find a, you know, an insurance company committing fraud, will you prosecute it? And they're going to be like, yes, absolutely. And um, it sounded so simple because we had such success the first time around. And then we started hitting reality. Uh, the reality is this. A lot of these people are elected officials. The insurance lobby is the second most powerful lobby in the country. And unfortunately, well, whether you agree or not, in America, money equals power. Uh, so I guess if you have the money, then you agree that that's a great idea. If you're somebody without the money, <laughs> and then maybe not so much. But yeah. they spend just behind Big Pharma. Uh, Big Pharma is the number one lobby. And... A lot of these elected officials sort of have to weigh the math because, first of all, we found out they've never heard. Most of them have never had anybody come and say, do you know that insurance companies are committing fraud too? Because their whole careers, they've only heard from the insurance lobby saying, everybody's stealing from us. You've got to do something about it. And to a degree, that is true. Uh, and it's wrong. All fraud should be cracked down on. But they've never heard from the other side saying, you know what? Some of these carriers... Some of these TPAs, some of these IA firms and engineering firms, not all, but some of them are really dirty and are really committing fraud and stealing from people. And so we had to back up and say, wow, we came up with this four-step plan. And step one was a proactive program to fly around the country and go to meetings and meet with these, these attorneys general and explain who we are, what we do, and the fact that insurance companies commit fraud too. And part of it is... You cannot be, you, you know, they're prosecutors. They're going to do the right thing. Every one of them can go out, they're public servants. Any one of them can go out and hang up a private shingle or go to work for a large firm and make 5X or 10X what they're making in public service. They will do the right thing if you approach them the right way and educate them, et cetera. But a lot of them, it's not going to be like, hey, you've never heard of me before. You don't know who my organization is because we're brand new. But here's a case and we want you to go after one of the most powerful institutions in America. Good luck when you go up for election next year and they flip a million yeah. dollars to your opponent. You yeah. know? So it's, you know, there had to be the first couple of years was meeting people and establishing relationships with people and establishing our credibility with people and finding the right prosecution team. You know, I had some, I had amazing, I mean, I put out a, Back when people wanted to work for a living, I put an Indeed ad and we got like a hundred <laughs> resumes like that from like former U.S. attorneys, assistant uh, uh, attorneys general. I mean, some really good hardcore prosecutors, but we were very careful. We picked just right. Uh, but, you know, it was the first couple of years was putting, you have to understand, this has never been done before. Yeah. If I want to start a public adjusting company, 
I can go on YouTube probably, right, Marcus, and say how to and find a video that says, here's how you become a public adjuster. Here's how you start a public adjusting company. Now, yeah. you may not be top tier, but you can do that. You can find that information. There is no YouTube video. There is no body of evidence. There is no organization that came before us to show us how to do this that said, here's how you form a grassroots nonprofit that goes against the insurance industry. It didn't yeah. exist. The strategy didn't exist. The tactics didn't exist. The hard lessons that others had learned didn't exist. So to start from scratch was quite an undertaking. But we, you know, we the, the plan, you said, what was it like organizing it? Mm -hmm. The pyramid, right? If you ever watch, there's a great tech talk called Golden Circle Marketing. Uh, and it talks about, you know, we didn't go for huge numbers, you know, the upside down pyramid. We didn't want, you know, let's get 10,000 people involved and throw a lot of spaghetti on the wall. Yeah. The, the golden circle marketing is sort of, and if you haven't seen that tech talk, it's brilliant, 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 brilliant. Um, I've heard of it. I haven't watched it, but it's on my to-do list. This, when you get done with this, look it up. It's only 20 minutes long, but it talks about the first 2.3% of the population are innovators. People who say, here is a problem and I'm going to come up with something to solve that problem. They are the innovators. They are the creators. And they're the people that are like, hey, the Wright brothers, you know, the people you know, Edison, you know, all these kind of people, Tesla, they're, those are that 2.3% of innovators. They see a problem and they set their mind to doing something about it because nobody else ever has. That's why the problem still exists. The next 13% of people are what's called the alpha consumers or the early joiners. And those are the people that are like, you know, everyone else is kind of sitting on the fence and saying, hey, let's see what this thing turns out to be. Then maybe I'll jump on board, but let's sit around and watch. You know, those are those are the late joiners and the laggards. But the uh, the alpha consumers are the people that say, you know what, this innovator has a good idea. I believe that this could make a difference. I am not going to sit and watch and wait and see how it turns out. I am going to jump on board and help it come to fruition. I don't see any evidence that it's going to be successful outside of I think this person has a good idea. These are the people that like waited online a week for, you know, overnight, they slept out overnight to get the first iPhone when a week later you could have just ran into the store and grabbed it. You know, these are the alpha consumers and they are the ones that have tremendous energy and PS they're successful in life. Right. So we picked those top two tiers and said, we're going to start with them. We're not going to look to get a million people. We're going to start with the innovators. We're going to be the innovators. And then we're going to get the alpha consumers involved and have them start to push the ball forward. And that was the organization. So we got the top people who routinely watch consumers get shafted by the insurance industry and have almost no recourse. And you know, Marcus, you see it in the street. It's heartbreaking what happens to these people. So we got the top leaders in the fields of law, of public adjusting, of restoration contracting. We've got many, many people that came in, Bob, but we started with the table and maybe about 20 people sitting around the table and, and showed a PowerPoint and said, here's what we want to do. And 
most of them, probably about 90% of them jumped on, stood up, pledged money right off the bat, pledged energy, you know, time, talent, and energy, which are the things that you need with something like this, which are the things that, you know, are the most scarce in our lives, right? You know, if you dedicate your time, talent, and energy to something, you really believe in it. So, uh, you know, we started with them and then we'll grow it out too. You know, obviously sure. the growth has been huge, but, you know, I, I expect at some point this is going to be a very huge organization. We're only four years in. We're in the realm of consumer advocacy groups, consumer protection groups. We're the new kids on the block. You know, you have United Policyholders, which is an excellent organization, phenomenal, the work that they've done. They're about 30 years old. We have the uh, uh, CFA, Consumer Federation of America. They're about 60 years old, you know, they, and they do incredible work too. So, and here's us, we're the new kids, you know, just showing, hey, you know, here's something no one else is doing. We're going to come into this space and do this. But y'all are very focused. I mean, y'all have a very... Very, very niche thing that y'all are working on and all y'all's efforts is going into that one thing, which is something that I really admire. And I don't think, like you said, nobody else is doing it. And I don't even know if anybody else is dabbling in it. So the fact that y'all are all hands on deck and we're going after this one area, I, I, I love that part. And I know that you've talked about kind of flying around and uh, meeting with, you know, attorney generals and all that. What What's the rest of the range that the APA does? Are they kind of boots on the ground during emergencies? Are y'all involved with lobbying on the state level? Um, do y'all meet with other politicians outside of, uh, or other public servants outside of the attorney generals? What's kind of the range that the APA works in? Well, we, we are pretty broad. Like we started out, we called it the rifle shot. Like you said, very focused, just criminal fraud, just license violations. That's all we're going to do. Uh, and then in the process of getting involved in this, you know, first of all, at the time, we had no idea how the odds were stacked against the consumer. Look, I was a financial advisor working for one of the company country's largest insurance companies for 30 years. Smarter than the average bear, I had no idea how the odds are stacked against consumers, how this delay, deny, defend strategy the carriers use, how all the people, the vendors that come in, how all, you know, the, a lot of this funds, a lot of elected officials' campaigns. You know, it, there is almost all insurance fraud is done to defend insurance companies. And the reason why is because all of the insurance fraud cases are generally come from insurance company SIUs. And insurance companies, for some odd reason, which nobody can understand, never turn themselves in. Unless you get caught stealing from the insurance company itself, like an agent that keeps yeah. premium, those guys get arrested real quick. Yeah. But then, you know, you do a Google search of insurance fraud arrest, you're going to see a whole bunch of people, consumer side, contractors, public adjusters, attorneys, criminal rings who are formed just to steal from insurance companies. You know, that, that's real. That happens. You're going to see a whole bunch of, just look at the images. You'll see a whole bunch of those. I can see a lot of insurance company executives in pictures. Yeah. <laughs> if you did. And anyone who can prove me wrong, please do. Please. You know, I say this all the time. Most insurance fraud prosecutors don't go after insurance companies and never have. 
Um, yeah. And if I'm wrong, please come take the case where you went after an insurance company and smack me upside the head with it. And I'll be the first person to admit that you're a, you're a good man. But, uh, you know, the they, insurance for prosecutors, the cases are fed to them by insurance. They don't go out and hunt down this fraud in most cases. There are exceptions. The cases are walk, packaged and walked into them by insurance companies. In many cases, the insurance companies are actually funding the prosecution, either through premium taxes or from grant programs. And there's money attached to a prosecutor going after these cases. That helps them fund their budget, helps them pay salaries, et cetera. You know, they're all starving like everyone else. You know what? They're shorthanded, short budgeted. And a little catch that most people don't know is if you and I turn someone over for insurance fraud and we're wrong and they get arrested and they're picked, they love to put their picture in the paper and newspaper articles and you ruin their reputation, you ruin their business. And we find out we're wrong, they can come sue us. But in almost every state, the insurance companies have statutory immunity from civil consequences if they have you arrested, have your reputation ruined, and they're wrong. Can, can you elaborate on that a little bit? In other words, like if they if they arrest a contractor for whatever they think may be swallowing a deductible or or whatever it may be, right? Or the homeowner submits something that they believe is fraudulent it ends up not being that way elaborate on that a little bit more that the that they don't have any that the the person who got arrested doesn't have any recourse if they come out and they arrest you and they damage your reputation they damage your business and it's oops we made a mistake now it's a little different with what's called malicious prosecution we'll talk about the joe radcliffe case okay um where they knew they did it on purpose you know Different story, but if it's, oops, we made a mistake, take the cuffs off, let them out of jail, and we'll go back and everything's good. But meanwhile, your reputation's been ruined. You've been yeah. in cuffs, you've been in jail, you've spent God knows how much money on lawyers, your life is ruined. You have suffered legitimate damages, and in almost every state of the country, the insurance companies have statutory immunity uh, that you, you cannot sue them for that. Are there any states now, that have reversed that or maybe they don't they don't have that in place? I, I believe it's actually every state has that in place, but I'm covering my bases by saying in almost every state, uh, because honestly, it's 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 just one of those things that it doesn't matter to me if it's, you know, look, if I get arrested in a state, you know, if you get arrested in a state, yeah, find out for sure if it turns out, you know, they're wrong. But, you know, a lot of cases this doesn't happen they don't necessarily admit they're wrong you're not always found a, a sad thing that happens is prosecutors do the i call it the big hammer little hammer strategy coming in we're going to charge you with five felonies but it's expensive to research this it's expensive to take it to trial right we have limited resources so i'll tell you what you plead guilty to these two felonies yeah. you pay a fine we'll give you fine served time served and we give you the easy way out the back door uh we had one of our members in i believe it was oklahoma the insurance company was doing like not paying for decking hmm. you know something like that that was pretty critical like if you're a roofer you can't not replace damaged deck hmm. you know uh and so they were like look i can't they have a deposit from the homeowner but 
they're not going to pay for it. You're going to have to pay for it. Or I can't do the work. I, you know, it's my license is on the line. So they complain to the insurance department. The insurance department see this a lot. The insurance department, rather than going after the carrier, came after the consumer advocate, the contractor, the public adjuster, and went after them. And they turned him into the attorney general. They came out and arrested him. And he's like, look, I had proof. I did take deposits on these, but I have proof in emails saying we intend to do the work. It just needs to be you know, paid for, et cetera. And they offered him a deal, five felonies. They're like, well, we'll let you plead down to one. You'll pay a fine, but then you're going to be a felon for the rest of your life. Yeah. You can't own a gun. And you know what that's like, like in Texas, like your culture, you will, this guy was heartbroken. He'll never be able to take his son out to teach him how to shoot. He'll never be able to take him hunting. Like that's a big, big thing. Look in New Jersey, not a big deal. But <laughs> in a lot of parts of the country, that's a big thing. And this guy was heartbroken about that. And they put a little sweetener in the deal. Here's the deal. And if you don't take it by the end of the week, I'm going to come out and arrest your wife because she's part of the business too. And your kids are going to be orphans. Because mommy and daddy will both be in prison. And this guy had proof that he was innocent. His lawyer said, yep, we could definitely get you off. It'll cost you about $100,000 in legal fees. And he didn't have it. So guess what he did? He had to plead out. And so that, that happens in a lot of cases. But in the cases where they do find you're innocent, you can prove yourself innocent, they do let you go. You know, look, they already put you in the paper in handcuffs. They already put the article there. Do you think that goes in the paper when you're absolved? Yeah. Right. You know, your reputation is damaged. It's ruined now. And, and normally you'd say, well, I've suffered damages. I've suffered a legitimate loss. I should have recourse in the civil courts in America for the people that did this to me. But again, in almost every state, possibly every state, they have immunity for turning these cases over, except for what's called malicious prosecution. So you look at, I don't know, are you familiar with the Joe Radcliffe case? A little bit, not not entirely, but he was a roofer in the Midwest, and you know I'm 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 not as up on this as I once was, but I mean it's a you can Google this case. Uh, he was uh, having a beef with the insurance company. He was a successful guy. He was winning cases. Well, I always tell people, look, when you're winning cases, you start to make yourself a, a target. And these yeah. one thing bureaucracy knows how to do is find the nail that sticks up and pound it down. So he was the nail that stuck up. They, they lured him to a, it was a mediation or uh, a negotiation, and they had like six sheriff's deputies jump him in the parking lot and hogtie him uh, and take him to prison. They, in court later, they found like, you know, the insurance company SIU that turned him in. I think it was Allstate, the insurance company SIU that turned him in. Uh, the SIU guys were like drawing cartoons and emailing to themselves or like, him getting sexually assaulted in prison and like it was bad there was a lot of bias involved there well joe was offered big hammer a little hammer he fought it I, most I, my hats off to him most people cannot do that but he did fight it and he actually found that they had exculpatory evidence the insurance company siu had evidence all along that they knew he was innocent 
and you have that that's called Brady evidence it's from a very uh you know when you look at prosecution processes it's very interesting but there's a case Brady versus Maryland that says if you have any kind of exculpatory evidence showing that the defendant is innocent you have to turn that over uh, so it's actually called Brady evidence they had Brady evidence they didn't turn it over uh, Joe was able to uncover this or his law team was able to uncover it. And uh, they were able to not only get him absolved, but he was able to settle for something like $15 million he litigated against the carrier for that. But that was, again, that's malicious prosecution, not, oops, we made a mistake, ruined your life. Oh, well, this was, you know, oh yeah, we did this intentionally. We had evidence yeah. and we withheld it. Well, like the topic of how involved these carriers are in politics has always just really piqued my interest because I don't think most people, like you said yourself, you had no idea in the beginning how deep rooted they are in our system on a state level and how that accumulates across the country. And I just, your perspective of how deep they are embedded into politics on a state level is insane. And I would just love for you to kind of talk about that a little bit and like how much money they're spending on lobbying um, the staff and how they put staff on insurance committees and at the state level. I, you've got a perspective that very few people in this country have. Boy, I, would, uh, I, I actually just did a presentation on this. They spend big on lobbying. And again, in America, money is political power, right? You mm -hmm. need money to get elected. That's just the way it is. Uh, if you ever look at the stats, like how much a senator has to start raising every single day, the minute they're elected, it's it's scary. So, uh, and that gives you influence. Now, that doesn't mean they're going to necessarily vote your way, but you'll get meetings, you'll get influence, your voice will be heard or the average slob sitting in like a, you know, a lower middle income house is not going to get their voice heard. They're not going to necessarily get a meeting with their senator, their congressman, their CFO, their insurance commissioner, et cetera. So, and, and they have, you know, they, all this money affords them to hire these lobbying firms uh, who many of them come out of public service. You know, they might've been a senator's, chief of staff for 20 years. And a lot of times these staffers have more power than the actual elected official. And they got a lot of connections and a lot of doors are open to them. A lot of people will pick up the phone to them. So they've got these, you know, people that are really plugged into the system and they've got a lot of money to fund it. And they know where to steer the money toward people's campaign contributions. So their voice gets heard. I've been to meetings and testified at state legislatures where we were the only people they're speaking for the consumer. There's a whole bunch of insurance company lobbyists in $5,000 suits there to speak. And sometimes they don't even speak. You know, they're grabbing some of these elected officials and committee members in the hallways and having meetings and they're observing. And, you know, you think that doesn't have an impact on where they're going to give their campaign contributions, who supports what they want, who doesn't support what they want. You know, it absolutely does. So, on the other side, God bless them. They got the game down right. That's why they're one of the most powerful industries. They not only have this giant tool of trillions of dollars, but they also have the knowledge and expertise or the ability to hire the knowledge and expertise on how to use it. Uh, and just like with the prosecution situation, look, 
pays for all of this. When an insurance company hires this top tier lobbying firm, whose money are they using? When an insurance company funds a prosecution unit with grants, you know, comes out of premium taxes, who funds that? We do. Who funds when they give money to an elected official? That's our premium money they're spending. So my position is, and everyone's position is, if it is the taxpayers and the consumers who are paying for this whole circus, do we not deserve at least 50% of the effort to defend against fraud focused on us? Should there not be an equal amount of cases defending policyholders and taxpayers from carrier side fraud as there is defending carriers from consumer side fraud, fraud or criminal fraud rings? Simple as that. We're paying for it. You watch a commercial on TV. I, you know, you can't watch a TV show without seeing five insurance commercials. That's our money. Mm-hmm. And, and by the way, now start to look. A lot of stuff, you know, the old 1940s movies is, you know, the, the plucky kids, the Scooby-Doo gang would find out some evidence and they'd go to the reporter and the reporter would write a story and the politicians would get outraged and change the law. Well, that's been compromised on the political side with all of this money. Not to say there aren't many good elected officials who will stand tall if you can fight through and get your message to them and your info to them. It's been compromised on that side. It's also been compromised on the media side. Because if you're watching the news, you're reading a magazine, who's one of their biggest advertisers? Yeah. So. And so you have two people, I, I, you know, I talk to a lot of reporters, we do a lot of press. And we've been in, you know, US News and World Report and Fortune Magazine, New York Times, you know, a lot of big publications we've been in for a new organization. We've done great with that. A lot of these reporters, they want to be Woodward and Bernstein. They want to be the people that turned in the Pentagon papers. They want to win the Pulitzer Prize because they made an impact but they start to get resistance when you're going against the insurance industry from their editors and their legal departments. And number one, they're afraid of alienating one of their big advertisers. And number two, the legal department's got to look and say, you know what, we're going after people with some very deep pockets who will show up with 40 lawyers from one of the top law firms in the country and come after us if we make a mistake. So they, the press has been muted to a degree. There's a lot of, you know, I have a list of publications that I know. Here's a reporter who has the courage and here's an editor in a legal department that has the courage to back them, you know. But if you see an anti-insurance or an insurance expose in the in the media, trust me, those people took a big risk in doing that and they are brave. You should support them. Well, um, and you, you mentioned it on the head too, that these carriers are very good at directing the frustration to certain channels. They're very good at making themselves look like your friend, that they're the ones who have your back. Oh, it's not us. That's the issue. It's your contractor who's being greedy and trying to take too much money. Oh, this is the PA who's submitting, you know, he's trying to throw stuff up against the wall to see if it sticks. They're very good at putting some of that on those people to keep the pressure off of them. They are experts at at making themselves look like the good guys. But the way that I explain this to homeowners all the time when I get a new client 
I say, you know, the basis of insurance is you're basically paying them a monthly fee up front for the likelihood that you're going to need that money back someday. If you did that with a savings account, you went every month and you put money into a bank account. And all of a sudden, one day, 15 years down the road, you need $20,000 out of that bank account to make some repairs on the house. You go to your bank to withdraw that, that $20,000 and the bank goes, well, actually, I'm just only going to give you 10 because I said so and because I think you can get it done cheaper. And if people thought of it that way, they would be outraged. They, they, would be, they, they would pull all their money out of that bank account. They would never use that bank again. They would blast that bank all over town talking about how they were mistreated and, and misrepresented. There is no difference with this. That is your money that you're fronting on a monthly basis. And when that person turns around and tells you, I think you can get it done for cheaper. I'm not going to give you all that, all that money. That's a problem. And the mentality needs to shift, in my opinion. Yeah, agreed. And there's a few differences like with insurance. Hey, listen, yeah. maybe maybe you have a problem the first two months and you only put $100 in that savings Correct. account. There yeah. are times where you'll collect $20,000 on that. So it's a little bit catchier you know, than that. And then, and then the other piece is... Um, let's be honest fraud happens on all sides all sides yeah if they didn't have the you know a dirty contractor who is you know inflating prices they didn't have a dirty public adjuster a dirty attorney to hold up you know my job would be so much easier we know people cheat on all sides and the one thing every presentation i do now when i speak in public the first slide i do is is that your integrity matters most our integrity we are in the best position to hold the insurance industry accountable when our integrity is beyond question so every single contractor public adjuster attorney consumer who is cheating the insurance company and inflating things you know is an asshole and deserves to have legal consequences because it hurts all of us and it hurts people like you that are honest and ethical and doing the right thing. Uh, so, you know, we're against all fraud. We only go against the carrier side because every other organization on earth is going after, you know, is defending the carriers. No one's doing this. So we are, you know, if I had my druthers, I'd go after all of them because again, it's all wrong. It all damages healthy, fair, resilient insurance markets help everybody. And there's enough money for everybody to win. America is a great country. You can get rich, you can do it honestly and ethically, and you can have a little bit extra to give back to people that aren't as fortunate as you, and, it, and that's success. And if you cannot accumulate wealth in this industry with ethics and integrity and honesty, get lost. Go do something else. Don't damage everyone else's reputation. Don't make it harder because you know part of the problem is, you know, there's this little war going on and everyone, the insurance carriers are like, well, we know the public adjuster or the contractor are going to start high, so let's start low. And the contractor's like, well, we know the insurance company is going to start low, let's start high. Mm -hmm. That And who loses in that is the consumer. And we are a consumer defense organization. Uh, and anyone who's aligned with the consumer benefits from our work. Right. You have to look at at the time of claim, 
the interest of the insurance company and the interest of the consumer are adverse. I don't care how many commercials they showed you that they're a good neighbor and they're on your side and you know they're they're your buddy. It's adverse. If they pay you a dollar, they lose a dollar. It's simple as that. It's a zero-sum solution. Who is aligned with the consumer at the time of loss? The contractor, the public adjuster, the plaintiff's attorney. There's a whole bunch of people that are aligned with the consumer. Anything that benefits the consumer benefits those people. But our ethics have to come first. And we talk about what's called old-school business ethics. And a lot of people, look, I learned this stuff from my parents, but I don't know if anyone, everyone, we sometimes we take it, we take for granted us old heads that this is getting codified and passed down to the next generation. But it's simple things like don't take shortcuts, do business for the long run, don't cheat. If you if you make a mistake, make it right. Even if you lose money, make the customer whole. You know all these things that we know, right? Don't don't. Do business in a way that benefits you. Your guiding principle is the best interest of the consumer should be number one. And when the consumer benefits, everybody benefits. The American economy benefits. The insurance company benefits. The consumer advocates benefit. You know, you have to do what's best for the consumer. Um, so these are old school business ethics that need to be taught to the next generation. And we don't spend enough time talking about that and making sure. And I know you know because you see the people. Who are cheating i i hear it all the time you know this one's doing that this one's doing this this one's doing that all fraud is wrong fraud happens on all sides it's all wrong it all deserves to be uh, there needs to be parity in fraud enforcement it should all be enforced now so with all the stuff that we're talking about in terms of fraud misrepresentation all that sort of thing is there a place that homeowners public adjusters attorneys that they can provide proof of fraud or violations against their policy to the APA? Is, is that like through y'all's website or, and when y'all get it, what, what, how do y'all normally go through your process once you get that information? So, yeah, there are fraud reporting. We, 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 you know, we prefer that you're a member, right? The people that help bake the cookies should get the first dibs on the cookies and members who, uh, especially, you know, we're funded by our professional members like yourself, you're a proud APA member, correct? Yes, sir. So, you know, that 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 is what helps fund our mission. And when you as an APA member reporter, you have a private membership portal that needs a password and, a, you know, sign in. And when you sign in, there is a fraud reporting portal there and it gets expedited, it's expedited fraud reporting because it comes from one of the people who are supporting our mission. Now, consumers can join for free as an associate member and you can report fraud, engineering fraud, adjusted for fraud insurance company fraud right on our website and it goes directly to our prosecution team and they vet it. Um, you know, we, a lot of this is, and I want to be clear, we're not here to win cases for people. We are not here to get your roof paid for. Some people get the wrong, you know, we're not here to, you know, help you win a case. We are here to crack down on the criminal fraud. The civil things, someone will call me and be like, you know, these darn insurance companies are committing bad faith. Well, bad faith is the realm of a civil attorney. And I, we have many excellent civil attorneys that are out there. 
you know, plaintiff's attorneys. Some of them are members of the APA, board advisors of the APA. Um, but that's that's where you go with that. But when it's criminal fraud, it's different. And our investigators will look at it. And you have to understand, a prosecutor looks at a case and they do a process because, you know, it's not like TV. A lot of us have these crazy misconceptions, myself included, when I first started this. I've been a world of knowledge. And I thought I was a pretty smart guy when I started uh, apparently not so much. There's, there's, there's this stuff that nobody knew. Nobody knew. You know, it's not like TV where the prosecutor throws charges on you just to get in your pants and bother you. You know, no. They have an obligation because they have limited resources. They have limited staff, limited budget. They're obligated not to waste public resources if they don't think they have a legitimate chance of winning the case. On top of that, they track their stats, you know, their their prosecution rate, and sometimes that plays into their future uh, success. So prosecutor looks at his case and says, you know, sort of a three-step thing. Uh, and again, I'm not an attorney. I do not give legal advice. Nothing I say in this process should be considered as legal advice. Uh, no prosecutor should look at this and say, let's do what Doug says. But generally the way it's been explained to me is they say, what is the crime that has been alleged to have occurred? What is the evidence that that crime has occurred? And what are my odds of convincing a jury of their peers that this has happened? Because remember, you go to civil court, they operate under what's called the preponderance of evidence. 51% I proved my case that you're liable. You're liable, I win, break out the champagne. It's a different standard in criminal court. It is beyond a reasonable doubt. And no prosecutor will tell you this on the record, but it's been explained to me that's closer to the 95th percentile mm -hmm. of proof. So they're going to look at that and say, am I going to waste public resources on a weak case? So, and, and the other end is with the APA, we understand that our reputation goes out with every criminal referral. If we send a weak case to a prosecutor, and we know this because we have prosecutors working for us. If we send a week, then our cases, our reputation is damaged and every case we ever send in in the future gets put on the bottom of the pile. So we are so strict. We don't have to arrest a lot of people doing this. We don't have to get a lot of people's licenses pulled. It is a deterrent. In Sandy, remember, we got one arrest. We got 144,000 claims reopened and $350 million paid out to people who had been cheated. And we had a whole bunch of headlines that we could now show to prosecutors that this is real. This happens because before that, they were like, that never happens. What are you talking about? Now we have proof. So we don't have to arrest a lot of people. And, and our prosecutors, bless their heart, are very strict. I mean, trust me. We go back and forth. I'm like, what's wrong with this case? You know, this is great. I'm not an attorney. I'm not a prosecutor. Like, nope, it's a little too weak for us. I'm not willing to stake our reputation. And I love, they drive me crazy, but I love that they know our reputation comes first and foremost. Uh, it'll, it'll all pay off in the long run. They're doing their job and standing up to me, which is no easy task. Uh, I've been told I'm a little bit uh, of a strong personality and I'm a little on the aggressive side and <laughs> not even, I'm like, I'm not even there. Good for them. Uh, you, gotta, you gotta respect that game. Um, so 
you know, they're, it goes to them and they'll vet it and they'll go through that process. So believe it or not, most cases that come to us are not, will not wind up in a criminal referral, but that doesn't mean you should not keep sending them in. And now the other thing we're starting as we're growing and we have more of a budget, we have more of an ability, we're adding more stuff to it and more staff. Uh, we have something that we're working on, you know, that sort of every case has a home. Somebody sends a case in, unless they find it to be complete BS, total fabrication, it should have a home. Maybe it doesn't result in a criminal referral, but we can refer you to file a complaint to the insurance department. We can refer you to file as a complaint to the engineer's licensing board or an adjuster's licensing board. A lot of people don't understand this. You yeah. know, a lot of these professionals have to answer to a licensing board. Uh, I was securities licensed for 30 years. And if you ever filed a complaint against me, oh my God, I would not sleep for a year. And luckily I never had a complaint in 30 years. Uh, but, you know, somebody who has a professional license, they take that very seriously. Uh, and and they have to stand in front of their licensing board who are people that are there to protect that reputation of that profession. So now we have recently hired uh, one of our uh, long-term original founding members, Larry Burtis, and he is the um, regulatory compliance administrator for the APA. We created an office just for him because he's he's that guy. Uh, if I have a tough case and I just don't have the bandwidth to read through it, I'll flip it to Larry and Larry will do a deep dive. Before I go testify to uh, a committee, a congressional committee or a, a state legislative committee, Larry will do a deep dive and say, here's all the people on the committee. Um, right, so one of the things he's tasked with is he's running the uh, threefold and he, he's just started but toward the end of last year, he's building out his department, the Office of Regulatory Compliance. And he is building out the complaint systems for number one, the APA whistleblower program where people from the other side, we know there's people from the other side who are being pressured to do things that they know are unethical or illegal and they're good people. Sometimes we don't give the people on the insurer side credit. They're decent people with values and they're being pressured and they got you know, not everybody can just stand up and, you know, be like, uh, you know, I quit, you know, they've got mortgages and college tuition and bills to pay and they don't, you know, but a lot of them are losing sleep and getting ulcers. We have a confidential, secure, anonymous whistleblower program where they can come to us. You can reach out to confidential at apassociation.org, confidential at apassociation.org, send us an email, send us a communication. Or you can grab the nearest APA member that you trust. We get a lot of that and tell them your story and we'll, we'll, we'll help you process it. Uh, and, um, that, and that's really interesting because I, I really appreciate you guys doing that because I actually had Sandy Davis on this on this show and um, or Greenwood. Um, I um, talked to her a lot about, you know, I stopped taking things really personally as a contractor and as a PA when dealing with carriers a while back ago. And just like you said, most of these people that are working on that side, they're nine to five people. They got a boss, they got a family that they got to provide for, and they're not going to bite the hand that feeds them kind of thing. And, you know, they're just, a lot of these guys are just doing what they're told. And for y'all to have an avenue that they can go to that it's like, Hey guys, like if y'all want to, y'all want the opportunity to step in and, and fill us in on what you're being told to do. 
they have an avenue to turn to. So I think that's really important because you and I both know there's adjusters on that side and a, a lot of uh, um, guys that are specialists that come in on specific claims that are leaving that side of the of the field and coming over to the Jedi side. And they're coming over to, you know, the PA work with PAs and contractors and things of that nature. So I appreciate that you guys have that part of the organization set up now. Yeah. Yeah. And whistleblowers important because they give us the inside info. And at least these people feel like they've done something because, again, you know, they have a crisis of conscience as well. They're in a tough spot. So in some cases, you know, it's, it's good for us to be able to treat them with courtesy and respect because they will come to you and give you some inside info. Um, and then the other two pieces that the whistleblower program is part of the, the Office of Regulatory Compliance. And then the other two pieces are insurance department complaints and licensing board complaints uh, okay. that they are uh, they are in charge of. So, you know, a lot of these cases, they may be like, it's look, it's not going to be the standard criminal fraud, but you should file an insurance department complaint. And insurance department complaints are a whole other animal. Um, many yeah. insurance, many many insurance departments are problematic. Uh, I have a presentation that I do that just shows all the insurance commissioners in America who've gone to prison for, for different reasons and corruption, et cetera. Uh, they've done studies to show that, uh, and actually I have two of them you know, right here on my laptop that shows that, in, they call them the revolving door. People that come out of an industry and then they'll, they go to public service and they regulate that industry. And then when they're done with their couple of stints of public service of, as insurance commissioner, they go back to work for the insurance industry at very high prices. Now they command very high salaries or they go to work for lobbies or, you know, but a significant percentage of them will go to work in the insurance industry in one form or another. And they've done studies because they'll look back and say, okay, Bob Jackson, I just made that name up in case there is a Bob Jackson. Bob Jackson became a revolver. He left after two terms of insurance commissioner of the state of Wallamazoo. And now he works for a lobbying firm for the insurance industry. He works for the, he's an executive in the insurance company itself. And then they go back and they examine his decisions during his tenure as commissioner. And they have found a noted bias on behalf of those those uh, elected officials who become later go to work the revolvers go to work for the industry that they're regulating, and uh, they found that they're they're very there's a, a clear bias in their decisions toward the insurance industry. Why? Because these guys know it's not an accident. I'm going to come do four years or eight years as an insurance commissioner, and then I got a very very tasty package waiting for me income going to work for the other you know for the industry that i just got done regulating and am i going to step on people's toes so that's why you'll hear a lot of people saying why bother filing complaints to the insurance department because they don't do anything about it anyway i hear well, that yeah all the time. and i want to i want to dive into the department of insurance here in a minute um before we get to that i was gonna ask you just Hearing hearing you talk about submitting this stuff into the APA and and all that, I, I can understand some people's perspective that they may look at it and go, well, my claim isn't big enough, right? Um, or my my claim isn't, you know, as big of a deal, so I'm just not gonna submit it in. And so I, I just want to reiterate, you guys are kind of creating that avenue in your system, right? Where each each situation is gonna have a home, whether you redirect them 
to a specific area or whether you guys do take it on and think that there's enough there for criminal. And then if even if it is small that they submit something in or I keep saying small right in quotes, some people, you know, their $30,000 claim is a huge thing to them. Um, will these smaller claims be put together on y'all's end to for like a larger class action that if a storm rolls in and you guys are trying to piece together that this this insurance carrier didn't do this once it, he did they did this you know thousands of times are is that what y'all do with those that y'all kind of still want those to come in and y'all put those together for a larger scale type of approach to something yeah, because it helps us. Number one, it helps us see where the dirt is being done. Because look, if they're cheating Mrs. Smith for $10,000, they're also cheating Fred Jackson, Bob's cousin, for a million dollars. You know, these these are systems that are in place. Yeah. They go into, so, you know, they may nickel and dime on some, but there's also some big ones. And normally, you know, I'd say, like $30,000 doesn't sound like a lot in your world, but to a consumer who maybe has a $200,000 house and a $50,000 a year job, that's yeah. huge. Huge. You know? But sadly, sometimes big numbers are what gets a prosecutor's eyes. You know, they want to see a big financial crime. And again, uh, you know, some FBI offices, you know, won't touch anything for under a million. Uh, yeah. and, it, and one of the things we found and part of the learning curve, uh, you know, is that, you know, every FBI office, depending on the area of the country, has different levels where they're like, oh, no, we're not touching anything under a million. We're not touching anything under 500,000. You know, so sometimes, you know, a larger dollar amount. But again, if I have $500,000 cases, that makes half a million dollars. Yes, because again, odds are that adjuster or that engineer or that desk adjuster or claims manager didn't wake up on Tuesday and decide to be a jerk on Mrs. Smith's claim. Odds are it is a long-term pattern. Persuaded mm -hmm. by the company or they figured it out for themselves and they've been a jerk every day of their lives for many years. So, you know, we, we want to start isolating who these people are and we want to start aggregating. That's why the APA works. Because before everyone sort of fights this in in silos. So if you know, you know, Bill Jones, the adjuster for ABC Insurance Company in the Dallas Fort Worth market, is you know constantly cheating. You know that because you've run into him on ten cases. But maybe there's twenty other professionals in the area who also have run into them on ten cases, and now we start to talk about it because you don't necessarily share that information with other people. But now as part of the APA, you're sending it in. We're, we're sort of aggregating this info. Certain people start to raise. One particular engineering firm that rhymes with Schmonen starts to ra rise up on our radar because we get a <laughs> lot of complaints about them. Yeah. That's what they do. Rhymes with Schmonen. Okay, we get a lot of complaints against them. Now we start to say what's going on over there. Okay. So, you know, and we only get that is because we all work together. And I always say this, dude, I know that you're a killer in the field, right? Gladiators are badass warriors, but the Roman army always won. 
because they followed a unified strategy and they worked together and they collaborated and my shield covered you and your sword covered me and they worked together and that is what we do. And PS, the insurance industry knows that. They work together very, very well. They have multiple organizations that they fund that to be able to work together and cover their asses and we need to do it to cover the consumer's asses. Yeah. And it, if the homeowner has enough to show it with their with themselves or the contractor, but more than likely a big advocate on the homeowner side is the PA. If the PA's got, you know, a, a case that regardless whether it's thirty thousand dollars or half a million, um, if we've got proof that they violated prompt pay deadlines, that they're misrepresenting terms of the policy, they're misrepresenting uh coverages, they're making misleading statements, and we can prove all of that, you know. I want to get into a better habit of starting to push this stuff to the APA and just that way you guys can filter through it. And if this person has been doing it and my file is the 15th on the list, that this person's done it. I don't know that that y'all are tracking that person or that, hey, this person is a red flag. My mine may be the one that teeters it up enough that your guys are like, all right, yeah, we got enough now. Let's let's take a look at this. And yeah. I, I think more PAs should should participate in that. Yeah, and again, with realistic expectations, because again, yeah. I think, you know, you can join the APA for $84 a month. It's the price of a cup of coffee a day. And I'm not talking fancy Starbucks, right? You you look like a bougie kind of guy, right? Oh, no, please. Your latte with the whipped cream on top. Okay, <laughs> simple cup of coffee a day. A lot of people kind of think they just hired a law firm for $84 a month. You know, we are not here to help you win cases. Uh, and I can't emphasize that enough. Yeah. We are here to pick off the criminals, the fraudsters, and the people who are violating the ethics of their licenses. Uh, those are the people that, you know, they have lost the right to have an American family's financial well-being in their hands. They have forfeited. They need to be eliminated from the market and Everyone else needs to know, because again, some of these people are arrogant because nobody's been going after the carrier side for all these years. They are cocky and arrogant. Some of the stuff they do are outrageous. You know, they need to know that, listen, there is an organization and I am a member of it and we focus just on this. And, you know, again, we don't want our members to use this. I'm a member of the APA. You better pay this claim or I'm going to turn you in. Please don't do that. That is not what we're here for, you know, and I hear enough of that. You know, that's not what we are here for. And you are damaging our reputation and yep. your reputation and our effectiveness by doing this. Do not leverage the APA to win a case. Uh, it's more about when the fraud and the unethical behavior pops up, now we have a vehicle that we can do something about it. And and for your $84 a month, you know, there's a group of people who are very talented, focused people who can do something and start to make a difference in this. You know what I mean? We live and breathe this. Listen to my voice. I had a deep, sexy voice like you when I first started this. And I can... <laughs> I sound like Kermit the Frog now, you know, because this is all I do. I live and breathe this. We talk about this all day long. It's just constant. Um, so, you know, having the ability, because again, most people, you're a business professional. I, I can't put all the focus on this. I can't pick off Jim Jones and do all this research and all this homework. I can't research 
how much this Department of Insurance head got in campaign contributions from the insurance industry. I can't research who is who in the lobbying world. I can't research which of the publications, the media, the newspaper reporters have the courage and the editorial support to be able to do something. And maybe you, Marcus Cox, can't pick up the phone and call and they're gonna listen to you. They will with us. Yeah. We do have that because again, you know, we've been very careful about protecting our reputation and we are, uh, you know, we've made it very clear we're here for the consumers. Uh, we're not here to make, you know, claims professionals wealthy. Uh, you guys can get wealthy on your own. Capital society, God bless you. Go for it. Throw a couple bucks when you do. But, yeah. uh, you know, we've, we're, we have the ability, like, again, how many people watching this have testified to a state legislature? How many people watching this have met with an attorney general face-to-face -face and be able to say insurance companies are committing fraud too, and here's how? How many people here be able to have a you know an article you referenced in an article in Time magazine or Fortune magazine? How many people here watching this have been able to testify on the floor of the US Senate? You know, we got to do that through the APA. Just this past June, I got to sit on the floor of the US Senate and testify and call out specific tactics done by the insurance industry, specific engineer and legal firms who are helping to facilitate fraud and call them out by name. And we can do that because again, we work together. Um, you know, the average person, again, you, you know, you got a family, you got a business, you got stuff you want to do, you got a dog, you got to walk, you know, you can't put the kind of focus in this that the average person, you know, that, that we can do. The average person just can't do that. So you throw a couple of bucks at the APA, you bring us some intelligence, you bring us some experience. You know, I learn a lot from our members. I, I'll be clear about this. You cannot be on the board of directors of the APA or you cannot be an executive. You cannot be in my position if you make any money in the claims business. There can be no profit motive and there can be no conflict of interest. And we don't do referrals. We looked at what other organizations, how they sort of had weaknesses and it's easy to criticize them because, you know, look, the bar associations are the best example. They make the best arguments for or against different legislation, you know, that help or hurt consumers. But in the end, they always get discounted because everyone's like, that's hey, just a bunch of lawyers trying to get paid. Yeah. You know, so their credibility is discounted. It doesn't mean what they're saying is not true. They make great arguments. Same thing with contractor and the PA associations. Well, they're just trying to get paid or they're just getting cases and they're getting referrals and the leadership is giving the referrals to their friends and their the leadership is in the business. So they're taking referrals. That doesn't happen at the APA. I, I was told from the get go, if I ever give out a referral, I will be fired. Uh, that is against it. Now, we want our members to work together make each other big and strong and successful defending the consumer. That's excellent. But, uh, you know, there's no referrals. I don't make any money in the claims business. You can't be a public adjuster, plaintiff's attorney, and, uh, you know, or a restoration contractor and be on our board of directors or be an executive in the APA. Because again, you know, our reputation or credibility is everything. Well, and I, and from here, you know, I, I do want to dive into the Department of Insurance specifically because so much of the PA's process is to observe what the carrier does. I tell people all the time, I can't force the carrier to do anything. I'm not an attorney. I, I can't enforce law. 
what I'm there to do is to basically make sure that if something happens, it's documented properly, and then it's teed up for somebody that if we have to go that route, that they can use it. And I help in, in investigating and taking photos and, and writing scope, but I'm there to watch what the carrier does and see how that compares to the restrictions that are in the policy and, and Texas insurance code. And when something violates, or when the carrier violates a section of the policy or the, or the insurance code, I write a complaint to the Department of Insurance and submit all my documentation that proves all of that, just like you mentioned. So, but at the end of the day, is the, ins is the Department of Insurance necessary? They're doing their job and are they taking these complaints seriously? And that's kind of where I want to start this part of the conversation. So I'll start with a caveat. The Department of Insurance is a state agency, but like so many state agencies have had their budget slashed and their resources slashed, and they are overworked and underpaid and underfunded in many cases. So they have limited abilities to, you know, process stuff. And then on the other hand is the need is overwhelming. And you know, just sometimes to talk to one person, they're traumatized. They're just, they're, they're overwhelmed. They don't know, you know, they'll talk for an hour and they'll cry and they'll write 74 page letters. And they're, you know, they, they don't, their communication skills are not necessarily great. And they're just, you know, they're cranky, they're yelling, they're cursing, they're breaking down. It's, you know, and that's just one person. And now you have, you know, you're responsible for millions of people in a state. You know, so the need is overwhelming and the ability to dig deep on any one case might be limited because of the overwhelming need. I just, you know, so I think part of that is, do I think insurance department is necessary? Absolutely. I hope to see some things I'd rather them do, but I'd rather see them get more funding and have more ability and, you know, the personnel to have a little bit more support to go after insurance companies and not have, uh, uh, here's an interesting, you know, the states that do it right, they do what's called a cooling off period with the revolving the revolving door issue. Um, Florida just did it. Florida just changed so that I think it was two years originally, or one one year, one year or two years when you left public office regulating an industry, you couldn't go to work in that industry for one or two years. They just changed it in uh, January first of this year um, to be six years. Two weeks before that happened, their insurance commissioner, Dave Altemeyer, resigned. <laughs> no reasons. Yeah. So. Awfully convenient. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe it's just a coincidence. But, you know, obviously, and again, there are, I have two studies. One is about 20 years old. It's from uh, the financial department of Georgia State University. And the other is a more recent one from 2021. It's from a woman who actually, it's her doctoral thesis of a woman who sits on the Federal Reserve Board of Directors, brilliant woman. And she took the, the Georgia State uh, research and then built on it. But they both show that revolvers, insurance commissioners who go to work for the insurance industry after their, their tenure is up, during their tenure, they have a noted bias in their decisions that they make. So there's a problem that often starts at the top. And again, you think, you know, your insurance is big business. 
there's a, it's very important. A lot of average Americans depend on it very heavily to stave off, you know, catastrophic financial losses. If, you know, you're dealing with hundreds of millions, if not trillions of dollars in a state. So you would think that the insurance commissioner would be somebody of the highest level of ethics and integrity. But not always the case. And there are many, many cases from all over the country where insurance commissioners have gone to prison. Uh, a more recent one was Georgia, uh, the Georgia insurance commissioner who served just before this one wound up going to prison for, you know, compromised ethics and integrity. So who, who, who determines who the insurance commissioner is? Is that like a board vote? Is that something from the insurance committee or they elected in? What Who decides who becomes a commissioner? In many states, they're appointed by the governor. And then in some states, I think there's about 12 of them that are actually elected. Uh, I know Louisiana, Jim Donlin, you know, is an elected one. Um, so, you know, they're either appointed by the governor, the governor's an elected official too. Campaign contributions and lobbying impacts the governor as well. Mm -hmm. the insurance commissioner and the governor is now the insurance commissioner's boss. So, you know, that influence, you know, I can't, go through it enough how much that influence of all of that insurance money and access uh, plays into part. I'll give you an example, right? We talk about the media a little bit. Every disaster I go into, I see signs on the side of the road and billboards and radio ads saying report contractor fraud, report dirty contractors, report corrupt contractors. You know, there's this gaslighting where they do this constantly. And, and I'm, my question is always, well, where are the signs to say report insurance company fraud? And I never see them. So the APA after Hurricane Ian in Florida said, we're going to put up a billboard. <laughs> and it says big giant letters defrauded by your insurance company. One of the billboard companies refused to run it. They're like, well, you know, we don't like to do negative stuff. And like, yeah, okay, how much money does the insurance industry spend on it? This is a big national organization. Yeah. So I had to amend it to uh, victim of insurer fraud, question mark, because they didn't know the difference between insurance fraud and insurer fraud, you know, but I couldn't, they wouldn't allow me to say defrauded by your insurance company. Contact wow. the APA. Yeah. And you can go on our Facebook page, uh, American policy Holder Facebook page and see that picture of that billboard. There's one right now down in Fort Myers, Florida. Uh, I wound up going with another company for the next round and they did allow me to, to write that. Now, Will they hear from one of their biggest advertisers? Let's see, and, and change their mind next time around? Let's see, but you know, this happens and this is real. There's a lot of influence and there's a lot of power. And you know, how do you, as the ordinary consumer, how do you compete with that? How do you get a fair deal? How do you be, you know, Joe the plumber, just working your job and raising your kids and trying to, you know, raise a good American family in a middle-class, you know, neighborhood, how do you compete with that level of power and influence 
it's it is not a level playing field for consumers and sadly the consumers are the ones that pay for it all it's our taxes it is our premium money that does all that makes all of this happen and we are not fairly represented in this system yeah to go to go back a little bit you mentioned that and, and i'm in agreement with you that i think these these state departments are underpaid uh, understaffed but at the same time, I do feel like their efforts are very one-sided and that being towards the carrier side. You know, th there's certain things that I don't like about the Texas Department of Insurance. And when I submit a complaint, we request, hey, give us updates once you guys have reviewed all the evidence and you've reached out to the other side and all that. On the portal that we have that we, as, as public adjusters, that we submit our complaints through, the notes and updates and the results of that investigation are in a format that I can't open on my computer. The, that file format is a proprietary file format that can only be seen on the Department of Insurance side, which I think is a little iffy. Um, there's other things like um, I only get like one update at the end of a complaint, um, but I've actually had a complaint written against me had an adjuster accuse me of writing an inflated estimate. And I had a guy from the Department of Insurance actually call me and say, hey, I'm the guy that's going to be your kind of one-on-one -on -one person as we go through this investigation and started grilling me with these questions. And I basically asked the guy, I said, look, for, for one, can you answer something for me? I said, how many contractors and or how, how many, I, I'm sorry, I said, how many adjusters on the carrier side have you had these in-depth conversations with or has this only been with contractors and public adjusters and he said well it's only been with public adjusters and contractors i said okay i said why don't we do this before we go into an hour two hour conversation on the phone about how i wrote an inflated estimate i would like for you if it's reasonable if you think it's reasonable to go back to that adjuster and ask him one have you reviewed my estimate in detail and two are you licensed? Because I know that he wasn't. And then two, or then three, if my, if, if he's reviewed my estimate, I want him to give specific line items that he thinks are inflated or not justified underneath uh, the evidence that I've provided. And I said, if he can't answer any of those things that in a reasonable way, I would like for you to reevaluate how you approach me with this investigation. Is that reasonable? And the guy said, yes. He called the guy, he called the other adjuster, went through all those questions, and he gave me a call back and he said, Marcus, we're wrapping this up. We're closing this out. Um, there's no justification for uh, you to be investigated. And to me, that just seems like, okay, I've never had that go the other way. I've never had them make a phone call to the insurance adjuster and had that kind of an investigative approach. So it seems very one-sided, not just underpaid and understaffed. I, I would agree with you again. Um, let, let, let's just go strategy wise. I don't know if you should be filing complaints. Here's what I, here's a thing that the APA is tracking and it's sort of outside of our realm, but doesn't look like anyone else is doing it. We're tracking a phenomenon where public adjusters are filing complaints against insurance companies and the insurance department does not go after the insurance company. They, in turn, come after the public adjuster. Mm -hmm. And the reports of that from Florida, Louisiana, Pennsylvania, 
uh, Oklahoma. And I'm sure as we talk about it more, you'll hear more about that. There's one of our members, Galen Harris, one of our board advisors, an attorney in Louisiana, tells public adjusters, don't file complaints against insurance companies because they're going to come after you. Have your consumer file the complaint. So that's one thing to consider. And if people, by the way, are having that issue, you know, let's talk more about it because I think that's a very interesting thing where I file a complaint against an insurance company doing something unethical and they don't do anything in the insurance company. Instead, they come after me. That's a problem. So, uh, you know, that's one little strategy. And the other strategy is, and this is just how you handle it. That's your, my philosophy is if you take a punch at me, you should expect three back. Mm -hmm. You'd never allow someone to land a punch at you or throw a punch at you without you having trained them. I'm coming after you. Uh, because guess what? You're Marcus, the good guy, trying to help consumers, doing the right thing. And they're just going to keep throwing spaghetti on the wall against you. And eventually something's going to land. Eventually they're going to come in. I mean, I've had people say like, hey, I work out of my house. Department of Church showed up with two investigators and a copier and sort of knocked on my door in the middle of the day and started scanning all my files. Um, and in a very heavily, again, I was in the securities industry, heavily regulated. You can march into anybody's office on every day and find something they did wrong. Some I they didn't dot or T they didn't cross. If they take enough shots at you, they will come after, they will get you. So it's important from my philosophy that if anybody throws a punch at me, they know I'm coming after them and they're going to expect a, a counter punch and three counter punches. And if you think that guy's unlicensed and should have been and should, supposed to be licensed, you press that and you come after him. You know, if you think he filed an unreasonable complaint, you press that, you know, it can't just be, look, we all know this. The person who allows people to be, it's, you know, it's the, the, the Munich syndrome. You can't appease aggression. You know, the person that allows somebody to aggressively come after them and that person does not experience any consequences, they're going to keep trying it. So just, you know, a, a strategy piece. And, and again, it's not for me to tell you how to do your business. I just know how I live my life and I know that, uh, the tables are tilted against you as a public adjuster. Uh, and I saw a great presentation once somebody read the requirements to be a carrier side adjuster in Texas and a public adjuster in Texas. And the language for public adjuster was like the Boy Scout pledge. You had to believe in honor and dignity <laughs> and friendliness. And to be a carrier adjuster, you know, you had to have a pulse be yeah. able to sign your name, you know? If there was actually a clear difference, one of the things the APA advocates for very strongly is parity in licensing and ethics requirements. So if you have to have a license to be a public adjuster, you better damn well have to be licensed to be a carrier side adjuster or staff adjuster, independent adjuster, because both of you have a consumer's financial well-beings in your hand. And the licensing requirements should be exactly the same. The ethics requirements should be exactly the same. And the Boy Scout pledge for honor and dignity and cleanliness in the American way should be exactly the same. Um, that, I think that's problematic because I do see a lack of parity in many states, Texas being one. Yeah. What, why do you think it would make a difference of the homeowner sending the complaint versus the PA? What, why do you think that would 
hold more bearing or ruffle the feathers less? What what's your what's your thought behind that? You're not going to make yourself a target. And before I give you too much business advice, remember I'm not a public adjuster. Cannot be an executive on the board or on the board of directors of the APA if you are making money in the claims business. So uh, this is this is knowledge I've gathered from people wiser than me. Um, sure. But if you you ruffle enough feathers, I, I I remember I was talking to a reporter and it was in Florida, and she was like, "Oh, I talked to this guy Mike, and he said he had filed two hundred complaints against insurance companies. He was a public adjuster. He filed through." And I said, "Let me stop you there. Let me guess." They came after him instead. And she was like, yep. So, you know, you don't make yourself a target. And then the other end is, you know, who is the damaged person? Who is the person that suffered the loss? Who is the aggrieved party? That would be the consumer and the homeowner. And who does the insurance department in theory work for is the Texas policyholders and citizens. I don't know if they're going to pay more attention to the homeowner. I think you'll make yourself less of a target by doing that. And at the same time, there are some insurance commissioners or departments that track statistics. Uh, I've had, I've, I've literally watched an insurance commissioner get up and testify to a state legislature after a storm that we know a lot of people got cheated after a hurricane in the Gulf and say, can't be a problem because I've only got 77 complaints. Well, number one, nobody knows how to file a complaint against the insurance department. And number two, people who do know are like, why waste my time? They don't do anything anyway. So, uh, you know, you, you want to support your consumer, in my humble opinion, to be the one filing the complaint and certainly make sure they keep you in the loop uh, as far as how that it turns out. Um, you know, again, I, I think and I hear enough reports around the country, if you keep filing complaints against carriers, the insurance department's going to come after you. Interesting. Yeah, because so much is breathed down our throats as PAs that, you know, filing these complaints is what tees up uh, that if it does go to litigation, it it's it's kind of proof in the pudding that sets sets the standard of actions of bad faith and unfair claim settlement so that, you know, attorneys can go into a case with, you know, pre-existing conditions that they can line up and, you know, that opens up the door for damages and interest and and attorney's fees on top of the restoration budget. So that's the perspective where I'm coming from of why you would file complaints. And it's not like the, and if I write the complaint and then let the homeowner submit it to me, that's kind of like, I don't know the moral compass there of like, you know, putting words into a homeowner's mouth, but I also oh, know to do that. exactly. And then at the same time, I don't think that the homeowner is going to be able to, um, necessarily take my evidence and show and correlate that, hey, this proof of loss was submitted on this date. Texas Insurance Code and the policy dictates that you've only got 15 business days to acknowledge the claim, uh, respond with either an acceptance or rejection, and you also have to give written reasoning as to why. They're not going to be able to articulate that in a complaint and then show thorough investigate uh, thorough evidence that that supports their claim that this has been violated. So to me, and everything that's been shoved down our throats, that's kind of been my approach in my business, but it's interesting to hear another perspective and, and kind of hear the thoughts of what's going through their minds on the, on the D on the department of insurance side. 
who do you feel is shoving that down your throat? Who's, who's teaching that? Is it the plaintiff's bar? Um, I'm not going to name specific names, but I would say, I, I would say generally in this industry in Texas, PAs are being trained to rely on submitting documentation, get the proof of loss out from the very beginning that, that, that gets the clock ticking. And if the carrier doesn't uh, abide by their stipulations in the policy and insurance code within a certain number of days, that's what, uh, that's what brings up actions of unfair claim settlement and bad faith that if it does go to court, the, the, that the file is teed up well for the attorney's fees, damages, interest, all that stuff to be uh, accumulated as well. Without having that, you're less likely to get those things if it does go to court. Yeah, well, I will defer to the plaintiff's bar on that. Like I say, I'm not an attorney, so it's not for me to give advice on that. I just know what I hear uh, from other people. And again, certainly documenting, you know, the timetable, the claim and the proof of loss is a different story versus filing a complaint against the claims handling practices of a given insurance company. Yeah. Um, which and, is and, and, our, and there's a lot of PAs, I think that, you know, their complaints are written in a way that's, you know, I don't like this guy because he's got red hair. I don't like this guy because he's tall and ugly. And instead, you've got to make your complaints very objective, not subjective. You've got to make it very much about the data, very much about what ha what happened. And the more you can prove, just like you said with evidence, the more you can prove that this event happened and that clearly violates, that's how those complaints need to be written. You know, writing this thing that this guy came out and maybe spent five minutes on the roof and he made these weird accusations and it's all hearsay and nothing can be proved. It, 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 those complaints don't go very far. So I, I agree with you that if that's all that's being submitted, you kind of are painting a target on your back. Um, but if I'm submitting, you know, 100 uh, complaints against Allstate in a year because they have consistently not made it, not issued ACV payments within five days. They haven't give acceptance or rejection. They're not getting given reasonings reasonings for re rejection in writing. That's I feel like that's a little different. That's that's the only point that I was trying to make. Sure. And again, I will defer to uh, your professional expertise. And certainly, if you're getting advice from the plaintiff's bar, I will defer to that as well. And maybe this could be your own separate, you know. Uh, podcast on how to file a complaint yeah uh, you pull in like like cal spoon teaches a whole class on how to file insurance department complaints um uh maybe you pull in some of the uh, apa texas board advisors john wood brilliant attorney uh certainly uh would probably be happy to come in and discuss strategy on this uh but again i will defer to uh wiser heads than myself that's just the advice that I have heard. And again, we are tracking uh, gotcha. problems, people who are submitting complaints. And again, probably more like you are like, you know, they don't have, they have red hair. I don't like them. Uh, <laughs> here's a strict procedure that we all know there's a five day timetable. They're, they're in violation of that end of story. You know, that seems pretty clear. Yeah. Why do you think there's guys like Steve Badger that are out there that are pushing to remove state licensing for public adjusters in certain states? And I know that he's currently trying to do that in Texas. Do you know anything about that? No, believe it or not, I'm not familiar. I would actually ask you for your thoughts on that and, and fill me in on that. Because again, I'm not a, not a PA, 
we're not a PA association. Yeah. Um, I, I do know, I mean, licensing to me seems, uh, you know, it's sort of the handcuffs that you wear. Okay, you have to come to us every year and get your license. So you better behave. Um, so, so, so I, I, that phenomenon. Yeah, because I've talked with uh, Matt Maholland and I've seen exchanges between him and and Steve Badger on on social media and things like that. And um, you know, right now Steve is making a big push to remove the licensing of public adjusters in the state of Texas. And I know that that's not the only state that that's being uh, attempted to. I I core I, I have a theory that. Um, Appraisal has gotten a lot of uh, publicity and and become very popular in this industry. I think it's uh, by design because there's no rules, regulations, and laws on the appraisal side for most states. Um, there's no certifications or licensing requirements on the appraisers that get appointed in states like Texas. Um, and I think the carrier likes things being in the Wild West. And um, they know that they're getting um, these uh, maybe slaps on the wrist. Other things may be more serious when they can prove things in court and a licensed adjuster is bringing this to the table. But my thoughts is that guys like Steve Badger are wanting this to kind of be like the Wild West a little bit. Is it like, uh, I want to say like Alabama, Arkansas, um, residential in uh, Kansas, I think it is where if there is no license, therefore the profession does not exist? Um, charge for services as a professional advocate on a claim if you if there is no licensing law? Are you talking about going that route? Well, because right now the, the carriers are pushing a lot of things and they're invoking or they're pushing the homeowners and the contractors to invoke appraisal. And they're trying, in in my view, they're trying to remove the process of the PA, or at least paint PAs in a bad enough light that people, it's not a popular decision to go that way. Um, I've talked to guys like Sean Hodge and and Michael Bush and 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 some others that have talked about how you know just because an award is signed an appraisal doesn't mean that the carrier is actually going to pay it. They don't have, uh, they can come up with all kinds of reasons and excuses not to pay an award and appraisal. And once it's in an appraisal. It's very difficult to get out, if not impossible to get out of out of appraisal. And unless you stipulate unfair claim settlement and bad faith prior to appraisal being invoked, the carrier gets their hands washed of liability. Um, I think that in the state of Texas, there's no licensing requirement to be an appraiser. Um, there's no uh, trade specification to be an appraiser. You could be a mold remediation person and you're being assigned as an appraiser for a hail and wind roof claim. Um, you see that all the time on the engineer side. Um, there's specialists that are on the engineer side that get assigned to this and they're a forensic engineer for hail and wind storms, which doesn't make any sense when they've been previously an, a, an electrical engineer. Um, but I just feel like they're they're trying to create this wild west approach to this process and they like things being unregulated. On a side note, I love that all of these professional references you're throwing out uh, are APA members, uh, Matt Mulholland, Sean Hodge, Sandy Davis, Stephen Michael Bush. Um, we, a lot of the people that are top tier in the industry are those innovators or alphas that we talk about, uh, early joiners that are helping build the APA. 
Um, so no. probably didn't answer your question too much, but again, I, I, I would check to see again, not, not my field. Yeah. But I would check to see if, is, if eliminating the licensing for PAs therefore eliminates the legitimacy of the profession of public adjuster and the ability to charge for those services. Well, and, uh, you know, I, I'd like to know too, that, um, you're, you're in the, you're in the, you're in the trenches a, a lot in this process. So are there any things coming up the pipeline that homeowners need to be aware of or educate themselves? In my opinion, education is king. I talk to Sandy about that all the time, that, there's a, a duty and a certain amount of responsibility that the homeowners have to, to learn. So I'm not asking them to be experts on it, but I'm hoping that some of this information comes through watching podcasts like this one or talking to certain professionals in the industry. Are there certain things coming up the pipeline that you've seen that people just need to get educated on? How do you think the homeowners can best equip themselves to not get blindsided? You know, it is difficult um, because again, you're talking about people that don't even understand what's in their insurance policy. Yeah. Um, nobody pays attention to their insurance policy. They pay attention when they're buying it, but what's the most, the biggest thing they're focusing on is premiums. Uh, and that's a big emphasis that's going on. There's, there's sort of this race to the bottom in the insurance industry with premiums and where does that money come out of? It winds up getting chipped out of the back of the claims process, but people focus on premiums. They don't understand their policies. Nobody reads their policies. It's like reading Latin stereo instructions and, you know, they get their renewals and, uh, you know, it, and it comes in the mailbox and they're just coming in from work and they got 12 minutes to cook dinner for four kids and get them dressed for soccer and out the door. So they throw it in a, on the side. And, you know, I, I guess basically I'd like to see people understand, you know, their policies, but I also probably would like to see strategy First, um, the APA has uh, some free literature that we've developed uh, on our website, one of which is how to self-advocate in an insurance dispute. Um, that, and it gives people just basic pressure points they can apply on the insurance. And these are really for people that there's a certain percentage of the population that, you know, it's not a big enough claim that they can't afford to hire somebody like you. It's not a big enough claim that they can have an attorney. Um, so those people wind up being underrepresented, underrepresented, and they don't necessarily know how to self-advocate. So we've put out a guide that's just sort of this collective experience from our members, and it's for free on APassociation.org under tools and resources. Um, and it just sort of teaches you pressure points to use, teaches you tactics to use and, and negotiation techniques. And... Um, cautions you not to be dishonest, not to try to, you know, steal and get more than what you're entitled to. Again, we don't, we don't want insurance companies to pay a dollar less than what they owe. And we don't want them to pay a dollar more healthy, resilient, fair insurance markets benefit everybody and they benefit America. And it's all of our responsibility to do that. So, um, you know, that's, that's what I would like to see people is maybe if they could take some time and understand their insurance policy a little bit better. Look, how many times do people find out about like water and mold, you know, limitations? How many times do people find out about hurricane deductibles? They find out when they've been hit, they've had a loss yeah. and somebody explains to them, nope, you're not going to get as much as you think from this. 
So if they understood their insurance better, we'd have less problems. They have more realistic expectations. And then on the back end, when they got shorted, they need to know you need to fight to the death. You never, ever, ever accept less than what you're entitled to. You paid premiums all of these years, decades in many cases. You're not asking for any special favors. You're not asking for any entitlement or something you're not, in, you know, you're not, you don't have a right to. You paid for this coverage and you make sure you get it regardless of what kind of delay, deny, defend tactics the carrier side is using. And, and you fight, fight, fight. You know, if you can afford a public adjuster, an attorney, by all means, you should use those professionals. This is what they do every day for a living. Why would I want to, you know, here's what I explain to people. When most homeowners have had how many homeowners claims, Marcus? Yeah. One? <laughs> yeah. Two? This is yeah. your first time doing something. Are you any good at something the first time you do it? Nope. No. And you're going up against the insurance industry a team professionals who've been in the business 20 30 years they all have strategies and data banks and they share information and they have ai that they're using they have armies of lawyers of lobbyists of engineers adjusters claims managers desk managers and you're going to step up and and in the end ps who decides how much is going to get paid on that claim where is all the power in that negotiation it's almost like saying, hey, Marcus, I know I owe you money. Let me figure out how much I owe you. I'll, I'll send you a check. You know, yeah. all the power and all the experience is on the carrier side. Why would I want to go up against that alone if I feel I'm not getting a fair deal? And the analogy I always use, always, is it's like, you know, it's your first day of Little League and you're eight years old and the coach gets you up after practice and says, hey kids, we're gonna go play our first game this week. We're gonna play the Houston Astros. <laughs> Good luck. Yeah. And that's how it is. And not to say every insurance company and every insurance transaction is there to cheat you, but the numbers are so large. Hundreds of millions of people have insurance co coverage in America that if it's just 5% of the people that get cheated, and I have many people who tell me the number's much bigger, but if it's just 5%, that's millions upon millions upon millions. So yeah. the numbers are large, and you know it's really important that people learn, you know, you need to know your coverage. I know you don't want to, but you need to learn it. You need to understand it. And then you need, on the back end, when there's a problem, you fight that you don't accept less. You, you know, it's just simple as that. Well, brother, to, to kind of conclude this up and wrap this up, I, I know we've talked about a lot. A lot of it has seemed a little doom and gloom to some people. And I, I want to end on something happy. So what what's something exciting? What's something positive that the APA is kind of doing right now? Something that you're really hyped up about? Um, g give me something happy to end on. We deal with stuff that's so grim. If it's happy, people don't bring it to us. <laughs> no one's calling the APA and saying, hey, my company did such a great job. And by the way, I do get those stories from people. I do have people who have, you know, my company took great And I'm like, oh, thank God. Because I, uh, I don't get to hear happy stories very often. Uh, look, we came to fight. We came to fight for the American consumer. Uh, it is a rough 
rough gig going against one of the most powerful industries in the country. So, uh, and the people that stand up, you know, are heroes. People like you who support the APA mission, mission, the people that you've talked about, like Sean Hodge and Matt Mulholland and Sandy Davis, you know, they're, they're great people that stand up and give a lot of their time, energy, and talent to defending consumers. And the fact that there are Americans who follow that American spirit by defending people who are being taken advantage of by large corporate interests and have no chance of defending themselves. And there's this tiny little crew of professionals who stand up and defend them every day. And you don't look, like I say, APA is not here to make you win, you know, win claims. You're not going to make money being an APA member. When somebody comes to me and says, I'll join the APA, what's in it for me? And the first thing I say is wrong question. <laughs> <laughs> we are a consumer defense organization. We are, you make a very nice living in this industry. This is a way for you to give back because you know every day the people that put food on your table are getting taken advantage of. And we're one of the only people out there really standing up for them in the way that we do it. And, you know, the fact that we have so many professionals like yourself that give their time, talent, and energy, even though there's no profit in it for them to stand up for the American consumer is huge. And that is the American way. We have a country because farmers and clerks and shopkeepers joined together and said, we are being oppressed by one of the biggest superpowers on earth. Let's grab our muskets and let's stand in the village green and fight against this most powerful superpower. And they did. And we kicked the ass of the British army, which had won all over the world. And we created this country called America. And that's in all of our DNA. All of our DNA is we join together with our neighbors and we stand up against injustice. We stand up against oppression and we defend people who are not in a position to defend themselves. And that's what people like you and APA members do. And that's what we're here to do. So, you know, it is a tough slog, but we will absolutely be victorious because we are right. We are on the side of justice and fairness, and this is the American way. And if that's not happy, I don't know what is. Well, I'm about ready to go to the gym. You just got me riled up, man. <laughs> well, Doug, I, I, I can't thank you enough for coming on, man. I really appreciate you taking the time. I know you're a busy guy, man, and um, I really appreciate what you're doing, what the APA is doing. And um, you've got my support and everybody on our staff here. And uh, we're going to keep fighting just like y'all. And uh, like I said, man, we, I just appreciate you coming on. So thanks for having me. Thank you for the support. Hi, brother. You have a good one. Bye, everybody.